Welcome to another installment of the Equip Institute. Glad that you are here tonight for us to talk about God's attributes. Uh, I want to open with a word of prayer, but I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight. So, you know, last week we talked a lot about the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, how the Trinity is kind of the foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, but the Trinity is also the Christian view of God. The God we worship is triune. So tonight I'm going to open in prayer uh, by reading a short prayer from this collection called The Valley of Vision. Uh, This is a number of uh, prayers that are taken primarily from Puritan preachers, although some of them come up to the 19th century. Uh, Very, very devotionally rich. And the very first prayer in this book is a prayer titled, the Trinity. And so let's begin by praying to our triune God. I want to invite you to pray along silently while I pray out loud. And in honor of our uh, Puritan forefathers and foremothers, I'm going to even use the King James language that we find here uh, in this prayer book. So let's pray. Three in one, one in three, God of our salvation. Heavenly Father, Blessed Son, Eternal Spirit, we adore Thee as one being, one essence, one God in three distinct persons for bringing sinners to Thy knowledge and to Thy kingdom. O Father, Thou hast loved us and sent Jesus to redeem us. O Jesus, Thou hast loved us and assumed our nature, shed Thine own blood to wash away our sins wrought righteousness to cover our unworthiness. O Holy Spirit, Thou hast loved us and entered into our hearts, implanting their eternal life, revealing to us the glories of Jesus. Three persons and one God, we bless and praise Thee for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. O Father, we thank Thee that in fullness of grace Thou hast given us to Jesus to be His sheep, jewel, and portion. O Jesus, we thank Thee that in fullness of grace Thou hast accepted, espoused, and bound us. O Holy Spirit, we thank Thee that in fullness of grace Thou hast exhibited Jesus as our salvation and planted faith within us, subdued our stubborn hearts, and made us one with Him forever. O Father, Thou art enthroned to hear our prayers. O Jesus, Thy hand is outstretched to take our petitions. O Holy Spirit, Thou art willing to help our infirmities, to show us our need, to supply words, to pray within us, to strengthen us that we faint not. O triune God, who commandeth the universe... Thou hast commanded us to ask for those things that concern Thy kingdom and our souls. Let us live and pray as one baptized into Your threefold name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book is called The Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision. And it's wonderful. I'm sorry? Okay, we, we, can, we, we will figure out how to do that. Is it in the library? 
Is it in the library? If it's not, we'll make sure it gets in the library. There are 10 of them. 10, 10 of those stocks them, the online group that we use for our bookstore. They have them. But, uh, but we'll see what we can do. It's, it's delightful. That prayer is just simply called the Trinity. But the book, this is a good rabbit to chase for just a moment. The book includes about, I'm going to say, 50 or 60 prayers on different topics. And it's from the era where at the beginning of their sermons, pastors would have long pastoral prayers that related to the sermon, not just praying like we do, but this was very common uh, until just a few generations ago. And so many of these are actually taken from those prayers at the beginning of those sermons or sometimes at the close of the sermons as they were praying on these themes. And so just uh, briefly, the categories that we have here, I do these with students sometimes at the at the university, but uh, one category is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We just prayed the first prayer in that category. Uh, The second category is redemption and reconciliation, all kinds of prayers related to that. Penitence, that's an old-fashioned word, and deprecation, it's all about repentance and putting our sin to death. Needs and devotions, holy aspirations, approaching God, gifts of grace, service and ministry. So just all kinds of different themes. It's a, it's a wonderful resource. So, the Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. Last week we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, and this session we are going to do the impossible, and we are going to spend about 55 minutes talking about God's attributes. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, in an ideal world, we would spend a couple of weeks on this. We don't live in an ideal world. We live in a fallen world where there's just not enough time to do everything that uh, we could. So I'm going to admit to you, this is the first time I've ever done this in one week, but I think that we can hit on the high points. And remember, uh, in just a few weeks, we're going to have the first of our open sessions Uh, just to talk about whatever you want to talk about, and that might be a good time to uh, revisit some of these. So what's the big idea whenever we think about God's attributes? Well, God exists, that much is clear, but God can also be known. The attributes begin to help us to know God. While both the created order and Scripture testify to God's existence, Only Scripture explains in specific detail God's nature and character. Just about all we can know from creation is that God is there. We can sense in some sense we're accountable to Him. There's not a lot more we can discern without having the Scriptures, right? And so we look to the Scriptures to understand God's attributes as best we can, and the Bible is abounding in descriptions of God's attributes. Now, when theologians have written on this topic or taught on this topic over the years, it's been very common to come up with ways to divide God's attributes. Now, I want to say a couple of things about that. Uh, That is an artificial act that's done for the purpose of teaching and understanding. Just as we are always all of our attributes, 
So God is always all of His attributes. And so when we divide these up and talk about them, we're doing that just to understand those different aspects of God and His attributes. But we need to understand that all of His attributes are always related to each other perfectly. Does that make sense? So we're just kind of artificially pulling them out to talk about them for the sake of understanding. It's also common as those attributes are divided to come up with different categories of attributes. I'm just going to share two of them because these are the two most common. So sometimes if you look in a book about God's attributes, uh, they're going to distinguish, and this is in the notes, between His incommunicable and communicable attributes. His incommunicable attributes are those attributes that are not shared or communicated with humans. It's an older understanding of that word communication. So we might think of these as God's shared attributes. He has them, excuse me, He does not have them. Uh, No, He has them, we don't. These are the attributes that are true of God, but are not true of humans, or only true of humans in the very dimmest sense. His communicable attributes are His shared attributes with humans. These are the attributes that God possesses perfectly and to an infinite degree, but humans also have these attributes, even if we possess them imperfectly and in a finite way. And we'll see the differences between these two categories as we talk about it. Uh, Another common way is to define uh, God's attributes between His moral and non-moral attributes even a little bit more artificial because there's a sense in which all of his attributes are moral. But some of them are overtly about character and others are less overtly about character. And that's why you see people make that division sometimes. So that's just a couple of ways. As a general rule, we're going to be moving from those uh, attributes that are not shared or less shared with humanity and continue talking about the ones that are more often shared with humanity. So any questions about that big idea before we just are off to the races thinking about these different attributes? All right, so what do the Scriptures say? We're going to begin with the first thing we see in Scripture. God is eternal. He created time. Thus, God has no beginning or end. Unlike us, He doesn't exist in successive moments of time. And He sees all of time equally and at the same time. Yet God also chooses to act within time. We're in time and He relates to us, right? So there's a sense in which God is the Lord of time who exists outside of time, but there's Also very much a sense in which he has entered into time by his choice. Now we need to confess there is considerable mystery here. This is beyond our comprehension. But we see both of these things in Scripture that God is both above time and God acts within time. And he does not share that attribute with us. We only exist within successive moments of time. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, and all the yesterdays and all the tomorrows that have been or will come. 
just a couple of passages. I, I referenced several, but Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am indefinitely, always, that's part of who God is. Or Psalm 90, verses 2 and 4. One of the best sermons I heard when I was a seminary student was an Old Testament professor preaching on this psalm. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. From everlasting to everlasting. Isn't that beautiful language? Communicating that God is. Now, how many of you are old enough to remember uh, Carl Sagan's uh, famous miniseries, Cosmos? You remember that? You've seen Cosmos? Remember what he says at the beginning of every episode of Cosmos? The universe is all there ever is or was or will be. Carl Sagan was wrong. Scripture tells us that God is. Number two, God is independent of His creation. And He is, in fact, the only fully autonomous being in the universe. But he's not aloof. He's not aloof. Autonomous, but not aloof. He's also not dependent upon anything or anyone external to himself. We don't have this. There is a sense in which all of us are autonomous, right? We're different selves. But are we fully autonomous? Well... None of us would be here without moms and dads. None of us can really, truly exist without any other contact with any other created thing, not just people, but any other created thing. But God is independent. Independent, but not aloof from His creation. Acts 17, 24 and 25, this comes from Paul's address at Mars Hill. Uh, Josh preached about this uh, last fall. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is independent. Sometimes, especially in American culture, I don't think it's unique to American culture, but we're Americans in American culture. Sometimes in American culture, we talk as if or we sing as if God needs us. Like God is lonely, so He created people. Or God needs to be worshipped. And so we worship Him. That's not the picture that we see in Scripture. God created us out of His good pleasure. He didn't have to, but He did. 
And we ought to worship Him because He's the Creator. But God doesn't need us. In fact, it's all the more glorious that God doesn't need us, and yet He loves us and lavishes His grace upon us, even giving His common grace to unbelievers who benefit from the winds and the rains and everyday human decency and whatnot. God is, God is overall. He's independent. Number three, and this is probably the most complicated one, so I'm going to go ahead and admit that. It's the most debated one. God is impassable. Now, if you look up at the whiteboard, I've put this up there for you. Impassable means no passions. What theologians mean when they say this is that God is eternally unchanging in His being, character, purposes, and promises. But that doesn't mean God doesn't have emotions. God has emotions in Scripture. He responds to His creatures. This is the key that we see in Scripture. We respond in ways that are good, bad, and ugly, that are inconsistent with our character sometimes, or maybe that betray faults in our character. God always responds perfectly in a way that is consistent with His perfect character. He's not without emotion. He's impassable. He doesn't have passions. The older use of that word passions wasn't chase your passion or I'm passionately in love with my boyfriend. The older version, passions are emotions out of control and run amok. That's what that used to mean. And sometimes it still means that, right? Crimes of passion. Emotions that are out of control and run amok. God has no emotions that are out of control and run amok. God never loses His temper. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17 Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So don't think when you hear impassable that God's love or God's wrath or God's mercy, that all of those are fake emotions or phony emotions. God has real emotions. But when you hear impassable, this is what I want you to think. There is no shadow of turning in thee. He doesn't turn like we turn in the wrong sort of way. Does that make sense? We can talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, but it's always been the most confusing of them. And so we'll return to it in a bit. Ah, the next one. We're getting into the omnis. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. In Scripture, God is sovereign. And what that means is there is a sense in which He is totally in control of all things, and there are lots of Scriptures that teach us that. But in some mysterious way, God's sovereignty is consistent with His design for His human creatures and the rest of the created order. Let me give you two examples. God 
is in control of all things, and yet God did not tell you what clothes to put on before you came tonight, right? God's sovereign over all things, but we make decisions that are our decisions that we're accountable for. God is over all things, but God has designed the universe to work in certain ways. Whenever the temperatures vacillate in certain ways, it causes storms. Is God sovereign over those storms? Yes, He is. But are those storms coming because of meteorological events that are woven into the fabric of the universe? Yes, they are. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this sometimes. And we can easily get in funny places if we go too far in the direction of God's sovereignty and we're all just robots, or we go too far in the other direction and all of a sudden we've emptied God of all His glorious power that Scripture speaks to. But God is omnipotent. But omnipotent in such a way that He has created a world. And that world works the way it was intended when He created it. Matthew 19, 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, the mundane and the miraculous. Or Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, far more abundantly than all we ask and think. Omnipotence is one of those where we could have come up with 75 verses. And other passages that don't have a particular verse, but just the idea of omnipotence is being taught. And so... Uh, it's very clear that God is all-powerful. There is a sense in which He's in control of all things, and yet the weather changes. And yet we all make decisions that we're accountable for. And this is a marvelous mystery, but Scripture teaches it. God is also omniscient, another omni all-knowing. God knows all that can be known, both actual and possible, in one simple and eternal act. What we mean by that is He has always known everything that can be known, both actual and possible. His omniscience and His omnipotence are closely related, and they're realized in His divine plan for all of creation. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. See how the omniscience and omnipotence are woven together in that passage? He will accomplish all His plans. He's sovereign and He knows all things. Or 1 John 3.20, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. It's pretty straightforward. He knows everything. Occasionally, 
Well, I won't say it this way. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a uh, Sunday school poster that was just a little corny? Have you ever seen a corny Sunday school poster? Corny church poster, youth room poster? Corny, pithy? Sometimes, though, those corny posters communicate something that's really true and that's a great reminder. And I can remember in my home church in Waycross, Georgia, in the youth Sunday school wing, there was a poster that was the globe with a hand holding the globe, and it said, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. It's a little bit corny, but it's a lot true. And that's what Scripture teaches us. God is both omnipotent and omniscient, and He is omnipresent, all present. He is everywhere, all the time, all at once. However, and we don't want to miss this, even though God is everywhere, all the time, all at once, He is uniquely present among His covenant people though this looks different at various times throughout redemptive history. If you go all the way back to the second or third week, last semester, for those of you who were with us, we talked about what I called the everywhere but especially there principle. God is everywhere, but He's especially in the garden where He walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And God is everywhere, but He is especially in the tabernacle where His presence is manifest among God's people. And God is everywhere, but He's especially in the temple. God is everywhere, but He is especially in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to tabernacle among us. God is everywhere, but He lives in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God is everywhere, but He's especially present in the church, which is His body. So God is everywhere all the time, all at once, and yet He is also in various ways at various times uniquely present with His people in a pronounced sense. Again, there's some mystery here, so we're just going to own the language of Scripture. 1 Kings 8, 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Oh, God was uniquely present in that house, but that house didn't contain Him, did it? God wasn't trapped in that little temple that was made with human hands. Or Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He's everywhere. But in the new creation, He's especially with His redeemed people on that redeemed planet where we will live forever and ever and sin and sorrow and shame and suffering will only be a part of our testimony but will no longer be a part of our living experience. What a day that will be. But we'll talk about that when we talk about end times. God is wise. He always chooses what is best and acts in the best way possible at all times consistent with His character. There is no lack of wisdom in God. O Lord, how manifold are Your works! In wisdom have You made them all. The earth is full of Your creatures. He has 
created and worked in wisdom. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! Not just wise, but implying He's all wise. There's a gap between God's wisdom and the wisdom of His creatures. God is wise. God is true. He is both true in Himself and He is the final standard of truth. All His words and actions are truthful because His character is perfect. See, we're getting into the moral ones now that are more overtly moral. Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. O God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Numbers 23.19, God is not man that He should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? A couple of weeks ago we talked about the doctrine of Scripture. One of the ideas we talked about was infallibility, inerrancy of Scripture. The reason Scripture is true is because it's God's written words. and Scripture reflects His character. Because God is true. It's another way in which there's no shadow of turning in Him. And now we see they even increasingly start to bleed together in some ways. Because again, it's a little artificial to talk about all these different attributes separately. God is good. He is both good in Himself and is the final standard of goodness. All His words and actions are good because of His perfect character. Psalm 106.1, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Or Psalm 119.68, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. I don't want to go down this rabbit trail for too long, but I would suggest to you that one of the things that has changed radically in our culture over the last 20 years is a kind of baseline recognition by the man or woman on the street that whoever or whatever God is, He's good. I talk to my friends who are evangelists or apologists or missionaries working especially in urban educated contexts. They say a few years ago they were having to convince people that Christianity is true and that God exists. Now they have to try and convince people that God is good and Christianity is good. Our culture has shifted as its worldview assumptions have shifted. But another one of those kind of corny things that really is true, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. This is what Scripture teaches us. God is good. God is love. He always loves perfectly, and this is very important. His divine love is the standard by which all lesser loves are measured. God determines what's love and what's not. 
Romans 5, 8. God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or very famously, 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Our world is so confused about love. And even many people in the visible church are confused about love. They love to quote 1 John 4, 8 as if it's kind of a standalone philosophical pithy statement that applies to all things. But that's what happens when we start to divorce some of God's attributes from His other attributes. Because God is not love in a way that is inconsistent with God being truth or inconsistent with God being good or inconsistent next with God being merciful and gracious. And I kind of put these two together because they're closely related. God is merciful and gracious. Mercy is God's goodness to those who are hurting and in need. Grace is God's goodness to those who deserve only judgment. Maybe you've heard it said this way in the past. I've heard many people say this. Uh, Mercy is getting from God what... uh, is not getting from God what we deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. But they're closely related to each other, grace and mercy, even many times in the same Scripture passages. And we see this here with Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God merciful and gracious. Or Hebrews 4.16, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is merciful and gracious. And those two ideas often go very close together in the Scriptures, which is why I put them together. God is holy. God is holy. His character is perfect. He is fully separated from sin, and He always does all things for His own glory. Leviticus 19.2 Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Or 1 Peter 1.14-16 which is going to cite Leviticus 19.2. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. All of God's commands related to holiness are calls for us to reflect His character because God is perfectly holy. I'm going to say a lot more about that in a few minutes. God is righteous or just. He is the source of all righteousness. He always acts justly, and He is the final standard of what is right. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Or Romans 3, 25 and 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, 
he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our world cares so much about righteousness and justice, sometimes in very, very commendable ways, sometimes in very confused ways, and often in ways that are somewhere in between being purely commendable or totally confused. But Scripture makes it clear, God is perfectly just. God is perfectly righteous. He is the standard by which all of our conversations about justice and righteousness have to ultimately go back to. Everybody loves it that God is love, but God is also wrathful. God is wrathful. He hates sin. He is set against sin, and He is justly angry towards sinners. God's wrath is not so much an attribute in and of itself as it is the negative application of His fundamental holiness and righteousness. Does that make sense? Now, this is why I say that. This is why I say that. Remember how we said that God has always been all of His attributes? There was a time in the history of the world where it was not necessary for God to be wrathful. But He was always all those other things. But because of His righteousness and justice, He is obligated to be consistent with His character to act in wrath towards sin. Does that make sense? So the way that most theologians talk about this is that God is perfectly wrathful, but God has not from all eternity been a God of wrath. Because He is a God of holiness and a God of justice and a God of righteousness, to be consistent with His character, God is wrathful towards sin and rebellion against that justice and that righteousness. Exodus 32, 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I make may make a great nation of you. Or John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. One of the ways that I'm reminded that God's character is perfect and ours is not is because God is perfectly loving and perfectly wrathful. I don't know what that's like. I can't fully comprehend. I can say that, but I can't fully comprehend what that's like. But if you think about the most obnoxious, hellfire brimstone sermon you've ever heard with no real love, just all about the judgment and the condemnation. And if you think about the squishiest, liberal, huggy, lovey, God loves everybody no matter what sermon you've ever heard, both of those things are so radically unlike God who is perfectly loving and 
perfectly wrathful because he is perfectly holy and perfectly just and perfectly righteousness. And it blows my mind to even think, how can that be? And yet that's who God is in all of his perfect attributes. So any questions before we start to put some of this together? And there's a lot of potentially confusing things here. Y'all are like, no, man, I want to see how we're going to put it together. <laughs> so, I heard somebody. Yeah. 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 That's a great question. So with God being omnipotent, totally in control of all things, how do we go about people, how do we go about explaining that to people who have survived a natural disaster or any other horrible thing that's happened? Uh, But natural disasters are a common one. There are all kinds of ways to do this. Um, I'm just going to share with you my personal opinion about this. But let, let me begin with what I don't like. So I'm thinking of a pastor who I'm not going to name, who I have so much love and respect for and have learned so much from, who his response is basically to say, God did that, he's sovereign, you're not, bow the knee, repent of your selfishness. I had a professor or worked with a professor. I didn't have a professor, he didn't teach me. I had a professor who would say, whatever it got means that God is in control, it can't mean that God is in control of bad things that happen like that. And so there has to be uh, independent bad things that happen outside of God's control if we're going to protect God's goodness. Whoa, Nelly. Folks, I just think we're in the realm of mystery here. I just honestly think we're in the realm of mystery. And what I've said when this comes up, and, and it, I've, I've heard the natural disaster thing, what I hear more often now is people who have experienced horrible things in church, like people who were abused in church and things like that. You know, how could a loving God allow me to be assaulted by my youth minister or whatever the case might be? Those are really hard questions. And I think we ultimately have to say there is some mystery here, but... The Bible says two things. The Bible says that there's no sense in which God is not ultimately in control. Even Satan's on a leash. The book of Job makes that clear. And yet, from Genesis to Revelation, humans make decisions that they're responsible for, good, bad, and ugly. And, And the consequences of those decisions matter, not just in this life, but in the next life. And there was a time where there weren't natural disasters, or at the very least, uh, they were natural wonders that were amazing, but they didn't cause hurt and damage and this and that. And, And so to the degree that there is a disconnect between God's omnipotence and His goodness, it's related to two things. Our finiteness, there's a sense in which we just can't comprehend it, and the confusion that comes with sin, which sometimes we don't want to try to comprehend it. We just want to blame God or whatever the case might be. 
I know that that is not, that is not an answer that is going to satisfy everybody who's been through something terrible. It's not, and I admit that. But I honestly believe it's the best thing that I can say from Scripture without in some way making God the author of sin, which Scripture won't let me do, or um, having sin or the consequences of sin like natural disasters or whatever being somehow outside of God's control and there's nothing He can do about it. And I don't think Scripture allows us to do that either. So that may not be a satisfying answer. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. Lots of people do. I just don't know what to do besides appeal to mystery in that and and try to say both of these things are true in a way I can't totally wrap my mind around. Yeah, Rick. Right, the, different, the question about different wills of God and things like that. So without chasing the rabbit for too long, because we will have some open discussion another night, um, I, I do think the Bible talks about God's will in different ways. And, uh, and I don't know that saying God has a will of decree and a will of permission and this, I don't know if that's always the best way to say it. There might be better ways to say it. But I don't think there's any doubt in which we see God's will language being used in different ways in Scripture, just like we see God's love language being used. Not God's love language like God has a love language. That's not what I mean. But the language of God's love is used in different ways uh, in the Scripture in different places, but it's always talking about different facets of His love. Is part of that mystery explained or illustrated in the Joseph story? Yeah. He meant it for evil. Absolutely. That's uh, actually that's one of the two places I appeal in Scripture whenever I'm talking about this. Uh, Genesis fifty twenty, uh, at the end of Joseph's narrative, whenever the brothers are thinking, "Oh my goodness, we're toast," and he says, "Nevertheless, what you intended for evil, God intended for good." Uh, or then there's uh, Peter's speech in Acts chapter two, where he says uh, that Jesus was uh, killed by sinful men according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God. They did it. They're responsible. And it was God's plan. And it was always God's plan. We're in the realm of mystery. But yeah, I think there's two different passages that are great for illustrating this. So what has the church done with all of this? Well, here's the good news. Through most of church history until the day before yesterday... Very few Christians questioned any of God's attributes. The only exception is impassibility. And that has sometimes been questioned for just very sincere pastoral reasons. So don't think like liberal drift or anything like that. Uh, How can an unchanging God identify with us in our sufferings? So that's a good pastoral question. But I need to say this. Even those who hold to the traditional view that God is impassable, and I do, I hold to that. I think Scripture teaches that. Has to agree that God's unchangeableness does not mean He does not genuinely respond to His human creatures. It just means He responds perfectly to His human creatures and not in a way that changes Him in any way. God doesn't get better or get worse based on how He responds to what's happening in the world. He's 
God is always the best version of God because that's the only version there is. That may not be the best way to say that, but I think y'all know what I mean. Here's the bad news. Since the Enlightenment, it's always the Enlightenment. Almost all God's attributes have been called into question. So I'm just going to give you a, a couple of examples here that even if you don't know the terms of the movement, you may have heard the ideas. There's a movement called process theology that says that uh, that denies that God is independent of His creation and argues, like lots of early pagans, that God is part of creation and vice versa. That He's uh, connected to creation. And even as creation evolves, God evolves along with creation. You can go to liberal divinity schools and hear people teach this. Or there's a movement called open theism that you find among folks who have a higher view of Scripture but are very confused on this issue. It challenges God's unchangeableness and omniscience and argues that God doesn't have exhaustive knowledge of the future and He learns things as time goes on. We had a big kerfuffle in the conservative evangelical academy about 20 years ago because there were folks who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the exclusivity of the gospel. This was their view of God. And it was a, it was a bad thing. It's, it's not right. Theological liberals question God's omnipotence in part because they can't believe God could be really sovereign and yet the world be filled with as much evil as it is. In fact, I should say this. Not theological liberals question. Lots of people question and they have sincere questions. Theological liberals reject God's omniscience. That's what it should say. So I apologize. We have people in this church with questions, and questions are okay. Liberals reject God's omnipotence because they say He can't be sovereign and good. Liberals also redefine God's holiness, His righteousness, and His love at least in part, so that they can also reject His wrath. One of my all-time favorite quotes about liberalism is that a... Oh gosh, you know what? I don't want to get this wrong, so I'm going to Google it. Hang on. Hang on. I'm not going to Wikipedia... I actually do that all the time, just don't tell the students. This is my all-time favorite quote. This is a a 20th century theologian named H. Richard Niebuhr, who's actually pretty liberal compared to us, but not the craziest kind of liberal. This is what he says. He was critiquing liberal theology. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross pretty good indictment of theological liberalism. And that's exactly what we see. It's a question-everything sort of mentality. So what ought we believe? What, What should we believe? Any discussion of God's attributes, again, is somewhat artificial because those attributes aren't independent of each other. God's divine being is the source of all His attributes, He possesses each of them eternally and perfectly, and all His attributes are perfectly integrated in a way that ours aren't. Many evangelical theologians, and I agree with this, argue that God's central moral attributes are His holy love, those two things together, which reflect His character. We might even say they summarize His character 
and are expressed in all of His other moral attributes. God is always perfectly holy love or fully loving holiness, and kind of everything else about His character flows out of that. Does that make sense? And that's what our world can't wrap its mind around. They want love without the holiness, or they demand holiness however they define it, but they're not loving about it. And God is perfectly holy, perfectly loving all the time. I want to quote from two confessional statements that I just think have very helpful statements about who God is and they address His attributes. So the first is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. This is the Southern Baptist Confessional Statement. It says, There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and His perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of His free creatures. To Him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without division of the one God's nature, essence, or beings. That's hitting on this weekend, next week, or last week. And then this is the confessional statement of the Gospel Coalition. We believe in one God eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect both in His love and in His holiness. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration, immortal and eternal. He perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning, sustains and sovereignly rules over all things, and providentially brings about His eternal good purposes to redeem a people for Himself and restore His fallen creation to the praise of His glorious grace. So I just commend those to you. There's other good ones out there. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith has a lot of great things to say about God's attributes in particular. Uh, Some of the old Lutheran confessions, again, this is one of those things that in general, kind of all Christian traditions agreed about until relatively recently with the Enlightenment and the questions that came. So you could uh, even go to folks who are other types of Christians, very different than Baptists. And if you go back and read their older statements of faith, it's going to be rock solid when it's talking about God's attributes. So how should we live? What's the takeaway here? And I think I've got three, maybe four things. I've got three things tonight. First, God's attributes are central to Christian worship. The better we know God, the better we know ourselves. The better we know God in ourselves, the more it deepens our humility and magnifies His greatness. This ought to lead us to more authentic heartfelt worship of the only truly eternal, independent, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present being in the universe. If our growing knowledge of God doesn't lead us to greater worship of God, then we don't know Him as well as we think we do. And we don't know as much as we think we do. Remember, God is the only subject in the universe that we cannot study enough of. You study everything else too much, it becomes idolatry. You study God too much, it becomes worship. I heard that. 
Growing in knowledge of God's attributes is an important part of Christian discipleship. It's often the case that new, new Christians only know a few facts about God when they first come to saving faith. And maybe that was your story. That was definitely my story. So a key part of discipleship should be instructing believers to learn as much as possible about who God is and what He expects of us. We, would, we should want to know God intimately and help others too as well. And I would say that this even applies to what I'm going to call pre-Christians who live in our homes. You know who I mean? The kids and the grandkids. Now, are they non-Christians? Yes, but they're more like pre-Christians because they're hearing truth all the time. They've just not believed it, right? And so whether we're talking about discipling new Christians or whether we're talking about pre-discipleship of those young people that we're praying trust Christ as their Lord and Savior, we want to fill their heads with lots of true information about the big God so that they'll know who He is and worship Him better. Or if they're not Christians yet, desire to worship Him as the Holy Spirit works in their life. And finally, God's attributes are a reminder of the importance of apologetics, especially as we try to build evangelistic bridges with unbelievers. We live in a world with so many questions about God's attributes, especially, especially those attributes that magnify the distance between God's greatness and us or that uh, those attributes that demonstrate how dependent we are on Him. Lots of questions about those attributes. So it's all the more important that we clearly teach and accurately defend a biblical view of who God is and what He does. It is not enough to be a theist and to believe that God exists. It is not enough to say, I appreciate the man upstairs or whatever the case might be. We must love and obey the one true God who is revealed to us in the Scriptures, and that includes all of His attributes. So let me recommend some resources, and then we'll have a couple of minutes for questions. Some of you may be familiar with A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. This is a famous devotional introduction uh, to the attributes of God written by one of the most famous pastors of the 20th century. J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Uh, This is the very best semi-scholarly introduction to the doctrine of God that's written by an evangelical. A number of chapters deal with God's attributes. Uh, I will go ahead and say this. This is the only book I've ever read at least three times that I was never required to read. There's a lot of books I've read several times because I had to read it because I was teaching a class. It's the only book I've ever read three times just because I loved it so much. John Feinberg's No One Like Him, The Doctrine of God. If you're looking for like a a thick theology book that's just going to really dig into who God is, this is a good one. It's relatively recent, and uh, it's got several chapters on God's attributes. I mentioned that, uh, you know, there's some confusion about God's love and God's holiness, and so I want to recommend a book about each of those two attributes in particular. D.A. Carson's The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God is a great brief introduction to that attribute. It draws heavily on biblical theology, the theme of God's love being traced across the Scriptures, And what he shows, uh, I think, very well is that there's about five different ways that the Bible talks about God's love. And uh, 
and it's helpful for us to know what God means in particular passages whenever he's talking about that love. And then finally, R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. I think this is the best introduction to God's holiness. Uh, Sproul argues that uh, holiness is God's central attribute and everything else kind of flows from that. And, uh, and again, I think somewhere between where holiness and love comes together, that's at the heart of who God is. And so I'd recommend that book as well. So we're at 731, but we can definitely stay for two or three minutes at least and answer any initial questions. And so what are we thinking tonight about God's attributes? Yeah. Um, going to the impassibility yep. of God, is the practical application of that when we're looking at passages where it seems like God changed his mind, like I'm going to destroy the Israelites that sin against me, Moses intercedes, and God says, eh, okay, never mind. Yeah. Is that kind of thing where it seems like God has changed his Yeah, so, the, where, so impassibility or omniscience, both of these come in with uh, in different ways with the various passages where uh, God does something different than He said He was going to do, and He says He changes His mind. And that happens sometimes, where God says, I'm going to do this, and people repent, or they intercede, and the Bible says God changes His mind. But the Bible also says that God does not repent like a man. And it says there's no shadow or variation in Him. So again, we want to live in that place where God really is responding to our prayers. He really is responding to repentance, but not in such a way that He's learning anything new or He's changing in His character or He's a better version or a worse version of who He was. God really is responding to us. That's not a mirage. But God doesn't repent like a man repents. He doesn't change his mind in the way that we change our minds. Uh, he is always consistently God in all his godness and everything that that means. Other questions? Oh, y'all are chicken. Okay. It's all right. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll talk afterwards if you got another one. All right. Let me close with a word of prayer. Lord, we magnify your name as we think about all the different ways that you manifest your attributes. We are so thankful that this is who you are. We're so thankful, Lord, that even in all of this greatness and wonder and perfection, that you not only created us, but that you've loved us, adopted us into your family, commissioned us to go forward and make disciples here, there, and everywhere. Lord, help us as we learn more and more about you to love you more faithfully, to love our neighbor more faithfully to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.